Section two of Celebrated Crimes, Volume four, Part three. Nisida by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part two. The young girl could not close her eyes during the whole night after the conversation that she had held with the stranger. His sudden appearance, his strange dress and odd speech, had awakened in her an uncertain feeling that had been lying asleep in the bottom of her heart. She was at this time in all the vigor of her youth and of her resplendent beauty. Nisida was not one of the weak and timid natures that are broken by suffering or domineered over by tyranny. Far otherwise. Everything around her had contributed towards shaping for her a calm and serene destiny. Her simple, tender soul had unfolded in an atmosphere of peace and happiness. If she had not hitherto loved, it was the fault not of her coldness, but of the extreme timidity shown by the inhabitants of her island. The blind depth of respect that surrounded the old fisherman had drawn around his daughter a barrier of esteem and submission that no one dared to cross. By means of thrift and labor, Solomon had succeeded in creating for himself a prosperity that put the poverty of the other fishermen to the blush. No one had asked for Nisida because no one thought he deserved her. The only admirer who had dared to show his passion openly was Bastiano, the most devoted and dearest friend of Gabriel. But Bastiano did not please her. So, trusting in her beauty upheld by the mysterious hope that never deserts youth, she had resigned herself to wait, like some princess who knows that her betrothed will come from a far country. On the day of the Assumption she had left her island for the first time in her life, a chance having chosen her among the maidens of the kingdom vowed by their mothers to the special protection of the Virgin. But overwhelmed by the weight of a position so new to her, Blushing and confused under the eyes of an immense crowd, she had scarcely dared to raise her wondering looks, and the splendors of the town had passed before her like a dream, leaving but a vague remembrance. When she perceived the presence of this handsome young man, so slenderly and elegantly built, whose noble and calm demeanor contrasted with the timidity and awkwardness of her other admirers, she felt herself inwardly disturbed, and no doubt she would have believed that her prince had come if she had been unpleasantly struck by the poverty of his dress. She had nevertheless allowed herself to listen to him longer than she ought to have done, and she drew back with her bosom heavy, her cheek on fire, and her heart rent by an ache that was both dull and sharp. "'If my father does not wish me to marry him,' she said to herself, tormented by the first remorseful feeling of her life, "'I shall have done wrong to speak to him, and yet he is so handsome.' Then she knelt before the virgin, who was her only confidant, the poor child having never known her mother, and tried to tell her the torments of her soul, but she could not achieve her prayer. The thoughts became entangled within her brain, and she surprised herself uttering strange words, but assuredly the Holy Virgin must have taken pity upon her lovely devotee, for she rose with the impression of a consoling thought, resolved to confide everything to her father. "'I cannot have a moment's doubt,' she said to herself as she unlaced her bodice, of my father's affection. Well, then, if he forbids me to speak to him, it will be for my good. And, indeed, I have seen him but this once," she added, as she threw herself upon the bed. And now I think of it, I consider him very bold to dare to speak to me. I am almost inclined to laugh at him. How confidently he brought out his nonsense! How absurdly he rolled his eyes! They are really very fine, those eyes of his, and so is his mouth, and his forehead, and his hair. He does not suspect that I noticed his hands, which are really very white, when he raised them to heaven, like a madman, as he walked up and down by the sea. Come, come, he is going to prevent my sleeping. 
I will not see him again,' she cried, drawing the sheet over her head like an angry child. Then she began to laugh to herself over her lover's dress, and meditated long upon what her companions would say to it. Suddenly her brow contracted painfully. A frightful thought had stolen into her mind. She shuddered from head to foot. "'Suppose he were to think someone else prettier than me. Men are so foolish. Certainly it is too hot, and I shall not sleep to-night.' Then she sat up in her bed and continued her monologue, which we will spare the reader till the morning. Scarcely had the first rays of light filtered through the interlacing branches of jasmine and wavered into the room, when Nisida dressed herself hurriedly and went, as usual, to present her forehead to her father's kiss. The old man at once observed the depression and weariness left by a sleepless night upon his daughter's face, and parting with an eager and anxious hand the beautiful black hair that fell over her cheeks, he asked her, what is the matter my child thou hast not slept well i have not slept at all answered nisida smiling to reassure her father i am perfectly well but i have something to confess to you speak quickly child i am dying with impatience perhaps i have done wrong but i want you to promise beforehand not to scold me you know very well that i spoil you said the old man with a caress. "'I shall not begin to be stern to-day.' "'The young man who does not belong to this island, and whose name I do not know, spoke to me yesterday evening, when I was taking the air at my window.' "'And what was he so eager to say to you, my dear Nisida?' "'He begged me to speak to you in his favor. "'I am listening. What can I do for him?' "'Order me—' to marry him and should you obey willingly i think so father the girl candidly replied as to other things you yourself must judge in your wisdom for i wanted to speak to you before coming to know him so as not to go on with a conversation that you might not approve but there is a hindrance you know that i do not recognize any when it is a question of making my daughter happy he is poor, father. Well, all the more reason for me to like him. There is work here for everybody, and my table can spare a place for another son. He is young. He has arms, no doubt. He has some calling. He is a poet. No matter. Tell him to come and speak to me, and if he is an honest lad, I promise you, my child, that I will do anything in the world to promote your happiness." Nisida embraced her father effusively, and was beside herself with joy all day, waiting impatiently for the evening in order to give the young man such splendid news. Eligi Brancaleone was but moderately flattered, as you will easily believe, by the fisherman's magnanimous intentions toward him. But like the Finnish seducer that he was, he appeared enchanted at them. Recollecting his character as a fantastical student and an out-at-elbows poet, he fell upon his knees and shouted a thanksgiving to the planet Venus. Then, addressing the young girl, he added in a calmer voice that he was going to write immediately to his own father, who in a week's time would come to make his formal proposal. Until then he begged as a favor that he might not present himself to Solomon nor to any person at all on the island, and assigned as a pretext a certain degree of shame which he felt on account of his old clothes, assuring his beloved that his father would bring him a complete outfit for the wedding day. While the ill-starred girl was thus walking in terrifying security at the edge of the precipice, 
Trespolo followed his master's wishes, had established himself in the island as a pilgrim from Jerusalem, playing his part and sprinkling his conversation with biblical phrases, which came to him readily in his character of ex-sacristan, he distributed abundance of charms, wood of the true cross and milk of the Blessed Virgin, and all those other inexhaustible treasures on which the eager devotion of worthy people daily feeds. His relics were the more evidently authentic in that he did not sell any of them, and bearing his poverty in a holy manner thanked the faithful and declined their alms. Only out of regard for the established virtue of Solomon he had consented to break bread with the fisherman, and went to take meals with him with the regularity of a cenobite. His abstinence aroused universal surprise. A crust dipped in water, a few nuts or figs sufficed to keep this holy man alive, to prevent him, that is to say, from dying. Furthermore, he entertained Nisida by his tales of his travels, and by his mysterious predictions. Unfortunately, he only appeared towards evening, for he spent the rest of the day in austerities and in prayers, in other words, in drinking like a Turk and snoring like a buffalo. On the morning of the seventh day, after the promise given by the prince to the fisherman's daughter, Brancaglione came into his servant's room, and, shaking him roughly, cried in his ear, "'Up, odious marmot!' Trespolo awakened suddenly, rubbed his eyes in alarm. Oh, the dead, sleeping peacefully at the bottom of their coffins, will be less annoyed at the last day when the trump of judgment comes to drag them from their slumbers. Fear, having, however, immediately dispersed the dark clouds that overspread his countenance, he sat up and asked with an appearance of bewilderment, "'What is the matter, your excellency?' "'The matter is that I will have you flayed alive a little if you do not leave off that execrable habit of sleeping twenty hours in the day.' "'I was not asleep, prince.' cried the servant boldly as he sprang out of bed. I was reflecting. Listen to me, said the prince in a severe tone. You were once employed, I believe, in a chemist's shop. Uh, yes, my lord, and I left because my employer had this scandalous barbarity to make me pound drugs, which tired my arms horribly. Here's a file containing a solution of opium. Mercy, cried Trespolo, falling on his knees. "'Get up, idiot, and pay great attention to what I am going to say to you. This little fool of a Nisida persists in wanting me to speak to her father. I made her believe that I was going away this evening to fetch my papers. There is no time to lose. They know you very well at the fishermen's. You will pour this liquid into their wine. Your life will answer, for you are not giving them a larger dose than enough to produce a deep sleep. And you will take care to prepare me a good ladder for tonight. After which... You will go and wait for me in my boat, where you will find Numa and Bonaru. They have my orders. I shall not want you in scaling the fortress. I have my Campo Basso dagger. But, my lord, stammered Trespolo, astounded. No difficulties, cried the prince, stamping his foot furiously. Or by my father's death, I will cure you once for all of all your scruples. And he turned on his heel with the air of a man who is certain that people will be very careful not to disobey his orders. The unhappy Trespolo fulfilled his master's injunctions punctually. With him fear was the guiding principle. That evening the fisherman's supper-table was hopelessly dull, and the sham pilgrim tried in vain to enliven it by factitious cheerfulness. Nisida was preoccupied by her lover's departure, and Solomon, sharing unconsciously in his daughter's grief, swallowed but a drop or two of wine, to avoid resisting the repeated urgency of his guest. Gabriel had set out in the morning for Sorrento and was not to return for two or three days. His absence tended to increase the old man's melancholy. 
As soon as Trespolo had retired, the fisherman yielded to his fatigue. Nisida, with her arms hanging by her sides, her head heavy and her heart oppressed by a sad presentiment, had scarcely strength to go up to her room, and after having mechanically trimmed the lamp, sank on her bed as pale and stiff as a corpse. The storm was breaking out with violence, one of those terrible storms seen only in the south, when the congregated clouds parting suddenly shed torrents of rain and of hail, and threaten another deluge. The roar of the thunder drew nearer and was like the noise of a cannonade. The gulf, lately so calm and smooth that the island was reflected as in a mirror, had suddenly darkened. The furiously leaping waves flung themselves together like wild horses. The island quaked, shaken by terrible shocks. Even the boldest fishermen had drawn their boats ashore and shut within their cabins, encouraged as best they could their frightened wives and children. Amid the deep darkness that overspread the sea, Nisida's lamp could be seen gleaming clear and limpid as it burned before the Madonna. Two boats without rudders, sails, or oars, tossed by the waves, beaten by the winds, were whirling above the abyss. Two men were in these two boats, their muscles tense, their breasts bare, their hair flying. They gazed haughtily on the sea and braved the tempest. "'Once more, I beg you,' cried one of these men. "'Fear not for me, Gabriel. I promise you that with my two broken oars and a little perseverance I shall get to Torre before daybreak.' "'You are mad, Bastiano. We have not been able ever since the morning to get near Vico, and have been obliged to keep tacking about. Your skill and strength have been able to do nothing against this frightful hurricane which has driven us back to this point.' "'It is the first time you have ever refused to go with me,' remarked the young man. "'Well, yes, my dear Bastiano, I do not know how it is, but tonight I feel drawn to the island by an irresistible power. The winds have been unchained to bring me back to it in spite of myself, and I will own to you, even though it should make me seem like a madman in your eyes, that this simple and ordinary event appears to me like an order from heaven. Do you see the lamp shining over there?' "'I know it.' answered Bastiano, suppressing a sigh. It was lighted before the Virgin won the day when my sister was born, and for eighteen years it has never ceased to burn night and day. It was my mother's vow. You do not know, my dear Bastiano, you cannot know how many torturing thoughts that vow recalls to me. My poor mother called me to her deathbed, told me a frightful tale, a horrible secret which weighs on my soul like a cloak of lead and of which I can only relieve myself by confining it to a friend. When her painful story was ended, she asked to see and to embrace my sister, who was just born. Then, with her trembling hand already chilled by the approach of death, she desired to light the lamp herself. Remember—these uh, were her last words—remember, Gabriel, that your sister is vowed to the Madonna. As long as this light shines before the blessed image of the Virgin, your sister will be in no danger." You can understand now why, at night, when we are crossing the gulf, my eyes are always fixed on that lamp. I have a belief that nothing could shake, which is that on the day that light goes out my sister's soul will have taken flight to heaven." "'Well,' cried Bastiano, in an abrupt tone that betrayed the emotion of his heart, "'if you prefer to stay, I will go alone.' "'Farewell,' said Gabriel, without turning aside his eyes from the window towards which he felt himself drawn by a fascination for which he could not account. Bastiano disappeared, and Nisida's brother, assisted by the waves, was drawing nearer and nearer to the shore, when all at once he uttered a terrible cry which sounded above the noise of the tempest. The star had just been extinguished. The lamp had been blown out. "'My sister is dead!' 
cried Gabriel, and leaping into the sea, he cleft the waves with the rapidity of lightning. The storm had redoubled its intensity. Long lines of lightning, rending the sides of the clouds, bathed everything in their tawny and intermittent light. The fisherman perceived a ladder leaning against the front of his home, seized it with a convulsive hand, and in three bounds flung himself into the room. The prince felt himself strangely moved on making his way into this pure and silent retreat. The calm and gentle gaze of the virgin, who seemed to be protecting the rest of the sleeping girl, that perfume of innocence shed around the maidenly couch. That lamp, open-eyed amid the shadows like a soul in prayer, had inspired the seducer with an unknown distress. Irritated by what he called an absurd cowardice, he had extinguished that obtrusive light, and was advancing toward the bed and addressing unspoken reproaches to himself, when Gabriel swooped upon him with a wounded tiger's fierce gnashing of the teeth. Francaglioni, by a bold and rapid movement that showed no common degree of skill and bravery, while struggling in the grasp of his powerful adversary, drew forth in his right hand a long dagger with a fine barbed blade. Gabriel smiled scornfully, snatched the weapon from him, and even as he stooped to break it across his knee, gave the prince a furious blow with his head that made him stagger and sent him rolling on the floor three paces away. Then, leaning over his poor sister, and gazing on her with hungry eyes, by the passing gleam of a flash, "'Dead!' he repeated, wringing his arms in despair. "'Dead!' In the fearful paroxysm that compressed his throat, he could find no other words to assuage his rage or to pour forth his woe. His hair, which the storm had flattened, rose on his head, the marrow of his bones, which chilled, and he felt his tears rush back upon his heart. It was a terrible moment. He forgot that the murderer still lived. The prince, however, whose admirable composure did not for a moment desert him, had risen bruised and bleeding. Pale and trembling with rage, he sought everywhere for a weapon with which to avenge himself. Gabriel returned towards him gloomier and more ominous than ever, and grasping his neck with an iron hand, dragged him into the room where the old man was sleeping. "'Father! Father! Father!' he cried in a piercing voice. "'Here is the bastard who has just murdered Nisida!' The old man, who had drunk but a few drops of the narcotic potion, was awakened by this cry which echoed through his soul. He arose as though moved by a spring, flung off his coverings, and with that promptitude of action that God has bestowed upon mothers in moments of danger, went up to his daughter's room, found a light, knelt on the edge of the bed, and began to test his child's pulse, and watch her breathing with mortal anxiety. All this had passed in less time than we have taken in telling it. Broccolioni, by an unheard-of effort, had freed himself from the hands of the young fisherman, and suddenly resuming his princely pride, said in a loud voice, "'You shall not kill me without listening to me!' Gabriel would have overwhelmed him with bitter reproaches, but unable to utter a single word, he burst into tears. "'Your sister is not dead,' said the prince with cold dignity. "'She is merely asleep.' You can assure yourself of it, and, meanwhile, I undertake upon my honor not to move a single step away." These words were pronounced with such an accent of truth that the fisherman was struck by them. An unexpected gleam of hope suddenly dawned in his thoughts. He cast upon the stranger a glance of hate and distrust, and muttered in a muffled voice, "'Do not flatter yourself, in any case, that you will be able to escape me.' Then he went up to his sister's room, and approaching the old man, asked tremblingly, "'Well, father?' Solomon thrust him gently aside with the solicitude of a mother removing some buzzing insect from her child's cradle, and making a sign to enjoin silence, 
added in a low voice, "'She is neither dead nor poisoned. Some filter has been given to her for a bad purpose. Her breathing is even, and she cannot fail to recover from her lethargy.' Gabriel, reassured about Nisida's life, returned silently to the ground floor we had left the seducer. His manner was grave and gloomy. He was coming now not to rend the murderer of his sister with his hands, but to elucidate a treacherous and infamous mystery, and to avenge his honor which had been basely attacked. He opened wide the double entrance door that admitted daylight to the apartment in which, on the few nights that he spent at home, he was accustomed to sleep with his father. The rain had just stopped, a ray of moonlight pierced the clouds, and all at once made its way into the room. The fisherman adjusted his dripping garments, walked towards the stranger who awaited him without stirring, and after having gazed upon him haughtily, said, "'Now you are going to explain your presence in our house.' "'I confess,' said the prince, in an easy tone, and with the most insolent assurance, "'that appearances are against me. It is the fate of lovers to be treated as thieves. But although I have not the advantage of being known to you, I am betrothed to the fair Nisida, with your father's approval, of course. Now, as I have the misfortune to possess very hard-hearted parents, they have had the cruelty to refuse me their consent. Love led me astray, and I was about to be guilty of a fault for which a young man like you ought to have some indulgence. Furthermore, it was nothing but a mere attempt at an abduction, with the best intentions in the world, I swear, and I am ready to atone for everything if you will agree to give me your hand and call me your brother." "'I will agree to call you a coward and a betrayer,' replied Gabriel, whose face had begun to glow, as he heard his sister spoken of with such impudent levity. "'If it is thus that insults are avenged in towns, we fishers have a different plan. <laughs> so you flattered yourself with the thought of bringing desolation and disgrace into our home, and of paying infamous assassins to come and share an old man's bread so as to poison his daughter, of stealing by night like a brigand, armed with a dagger, into my sister's room, and of being led off by marrying the most beautiful woman in the kingdom.' The prince made a movement. "'Listen,' continued Gabriel, "'I could break you as I broke your dagger just now, but I have pity on you. I see that you can do nothing with your hands, neither defend yourself nor work. Go, I begin to understand. You are a braggart, my fine sir. Your poverty is usurped. You have decked yourself in these poor clothes, but you are unworthy of them.' He suffered a glance of crushing contempt to fall upon the prince. Then, going to a cupboard hidden in the wall, he drew out a rifle and an axe. "'Here,' said he, "'are all the weapons in the house. Choose.' A flash of joy illuminated the countenance of the prince, who had hitherto suppressed his rage. He seized the rifle eagerly, drew three steps backward, and drawing himself up to his full height, said, "'You would have done better to lend me this weapon at the beginning.' for then I would have been spared from witnessing your silly vaporings and frantic convulsions. Thanks, young man. One of my servants will bring you back your gun. Farewell. And he threw him his purse, which fell heavily at the fisherman's feet. I lent you that rifle to fight with me, cried Gabriel, whom surprise had rooted to the spot. Move aside, my lad. You are out of your senses, said the prince, taking a step toward the door. So you refuse to defend yourself? asked Gabriel in a determined voice. "'I have told you already that I cannot fight with you.' "'Why not?' "'Because such is the will of God, because you were born to crawl, and I to trample you under my feet, 
because all the blood that I could shed in this island would not purchase one drop of my blood, because a thousand lives of wretches like you are not equal to one hour of mine, because you will kneel at my name, that I am now going to utter, because in short, you are but a poor fisherman, and my name is Prince of Brancaleone. At this dreaded name, which the young nobleman flung like a thunderbolt at his head, the fisherman bounded like a lion. He drew a deep breath as though he had lifted a weight that had long rested on his heart. Ha! <laughs> he cried, you have given yourself into my hands, my lord. Between the poor fisherman and the all-powerful prince, there is a debt of blood. You shall pay for yourself and for your father. We are going to settle our accounts, your excellency, he added, rising his axe over the head of the prince who was aiming at him. Oh, you were in too great haste to choose. The rifle is not loaded. The prince turned pale. Between our two families, Gabriel continued, there exists a horrible secret which my mother confided to me on the brink of the grave, of which my father himself is unaware, and that no man in the world must learn. You are different. You are going to die. He dragged him into the space outside the house. Do you know why my sister, whom you wished to dishonor, was vowed to the Madonna? Because your father, like you, wished to dishonor my mother. In your cursed house there is a tradition of infamy. You do not know what slow and terrible torments my poor mother endured, torments that broke her strength and caused her to die in early youth, and that her angelic soul dared confide to none but her son in that supreme hour in an order to bid me watch over my sister. The fisherman wiped away a burning tear. One day, before we were born, a fine lady, richly dressed, landed in our island from a splendid boat. She asked to see my mother, who was as young and beautiful as my Nisida is today. She could not cease from admiring her. She blamed the blindness of fate which had buried this lovely jewel in the bosom of an obscure island. She showered praises, caresses, and gifts upon my mother, and after many indirect speeches finally asked her parents for her, that she might make her her lady-in-waiting. The poor people, foreseeing in the protection of so great a lady a brilliant future for their daughter, were weak enough to yield. That lady was your mother, and do you know why she came thus to seek that poor innocent maiden? Because your mother had a lover, and because she wished to make sure, in this infamous manner, of the prince's indulgence. Silence, wretch! Oh, your excellency will hear me out. At the beginning, my poor mother found herself surrounded by the tenderest care. The princess could not be parted from her for a moment. The most flattering words, the finest clothes, the richest ornaments were hers. The servants paid her as much respect as though she were a daughter of the house. When her parents went to see her and to inquire whether she did not at all regret having left them, they found her so lovely and so happy that they blessed the princess as a good angel sent them from God. And the prince conceived a remarkable affection for my mother. Little by little his manners became more familiar and affectionate. At last the princess went away for a few days, regretting that she could not take with her her dear child, as she called her. Then the prince's brutality knew no further barriers. He no longer concealed his shameful plans of seduction. He spread before the poor girl's eyes pearl necklaces and caskets of diamonds. He passed from the most glowing passion to the blackest fury, from the humblest prayer to the most horrible threats. The poor child was shut up in a cellar, where there was hardly a gleam of daylight, and every morning a frightful jailer came and threw her a bit of black bread, repeating with oaths that it only depended upon herself to alter all this by becoming the prince's mistress. This cruelty continued for two years. 
princess had gone on a long journey and my mother's poor parents believed that their daughter was still happy with her protectress on her return having no doubt fresh sins for which she needed forgiveness she took my mother from her dungeon assumed the liveliest indignation at this horrible treatment about which she appeared to have known nothing wiped her tears and by an abominable refinement of perfidy received the thanks of the victim whom she was about to sacrifice one evening i have just finished my lord the princess chose to sup alone with her lady-in-waiting the rarest fruits the most exquisite dishes and the most delicate wines were served to my poor mother whose prolonged privations had injured her health and weakened her reason she gave way to a morbid gaiety diabolical filters were poured into her cup that is another tradition in your family my mother felt uplifted her eyes shone with feverish brilliance her cheeks were on fire then the prince came in oh your excellency will see that god protects the poor my darling mother like a frightened dove sheltered herself in the bosom of the princess who pushed her away laughing the poor distraught girl trembling weeping knelt down in the midst of that infamous room it was saint anne's day all at once the house shook the walls cracked cries of distress rang out in the streets my mother was saved it was the earthquake that destroyed half naples you know all about it my lord since your old palace is no longer habitable what are you driving at cried brancaleone in terrible agitation oh i merely wish to persuade you that you must fight with me answered the fisherman coldly as he offered him a cartridge and now he added in an excited tone say your prayers my lord for i warn you you will die by my hand justice must be done the prince carefully examined the powder and shot made sure that his rifle was in good condition loaded it and eager to make an end took aim at the fisherman but either because he had been so much disturbed by his opponent's terrible tale or because the grass was wet from the storm at the moment when he put forward his left foot to steady his shot he slipped lost his balance and fell on one knee he fired into the air that does not count my lord cried gabriel instantly and handed him a second charge at the noise of the report solomon had appeared at the window and understanding what was going on had lifted his hands to heaven in order to address to god a dumb and fervent prayer elegi uttered a frightful imprecation and hastily reloaded his rifle but struck by the calm confidence of the young man who stood motionless before him and by the old man who impassive and undisturbed seemed to be conjuring god in the name of a father's authority disconcerted by his fall his knees shaking and his arm jarred he felt the chills of death running in his veins attempting nevertheless to master his emotion he took aim a second time the bullet whistled by the fisherman's ear and buried itself in the stem of a poplar the prince with the energy of despair seized the barrel of his weapon in both hands but gabriel was coming forward with his axe a terrible foe and his first stroke carried away the butt of the rifle he was still hesitating however to kill a defenceless man when two armed servants appeared at the end of the pathway gabriel did not see them coming but at the moment when they would have seized him by the shoulders solomon uttered a cry and rushed to his son's assistance help numa help bonnaroo death to the ruffians they want to murder me you lie prince of brancaleone cried gabriel and with one blow of the axe he cleft his skull the two bravos who were coming to their master's assistance when they saw him fall took flight solomon and his son went up to nisida's room the young girl had just shaken off her heavy slumber 
A slight perspiration moistened her brow, and she opened her eyes slowly to the dawning day. "'Why are you looking at me in that way, father?' she said, her mind still wandering a littler, and she passed her hand over her forehead. The old man embraced her tenderly. "'You have just passed through a great danger, my poor Nisita," said he. "'Arise, and let us give thanks to the Madonna.' Then all three, kneeling before the sacred image of the Virgin, began to recite litanies. But at that very instant a noise of arms sounded in the enclosure. The house was surrounded by soldiers, and a lieutenant of gendarmes, seizing Gabriel, said in a loud voice, "'In the name of the law, I arrest you for the murder that you have just committed upon the person of His Excellency and illustrious lordship, the Prince of Brancaleone.' Nisida, struck by these words, remained pale and motionless like a marble statue, kneeling on a tomb. Gabriel was already preparing to make an unreasoning resistance, when a gesture from his father stopped him. "'Signor Tenente,' said the old man, addressing himself to the officer, "'my son killed the prince in lawful defense, for the latter had scaled our house and made his way in at night and with arms in his hands. The proof are before your eyes. Here is a ladder set up against the window, and here—' He proceeded, picking up the two pieces of the broken blade, is a dagger with the Brancaloni arms. However, we do not refuse to follow you. The last words of the fisherman were drowned by cries of, Down with the Spiri! Down with the gendarmes! which were repeated in every direction. The whole island was up in arms, and the fisher folk would have suffered themselves to be cut up to the last man before allowing a single hair of Solomon or of his son to be touched. But the old man appeared upon his threshold, and, stretching out his arms with a calm and grave movement that quieted the anger of the crowd, he said, "'Thanks, my children. The law must be respected. I shall be able alone to defend the innocence of my son before the judges.' Hardly three months have elapsed since the day upon which we first beheld the old fisherman of Nisida, sitting before the door of his dwelling, irradiated by all the happiness that he had succeeded in creating around him reigning like a king on his throne of rock, and blessing his two children, the most beautiful creatures on the island. Now the whole existence of this man, who was once so happy and so much envied, is changed. The smiling cottage that hung over the gulf like a swan over a transparent lake is sad and desolate. The little enclosure, with its hedges of lilac and hawthorn, where joyous groups used to come and sit at the close of the day, is silent and deserted. No human sound dares to trouble the morning of this saddened solitude. Only toward evening the waves of the sea, compassionating such great misfortunes, came to murmur plaintive notes upon the beach. End of section 2. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.